Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. If you have a project or a publication that you would like to discuss on the podcast, I would be delighted to hear from you. You can email me on press at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 24th of July, 2017. In today's episode, we examine the opening phases of the 1917 Battle of Arras. Jim Smithson has written a new book on the conflict. His book, published by Helion & Co., is titled A Taste of Success, The First Battle of the Scarp, The Opening Phase of the Battle of Arras, 9th to the 14th of April, 1917. I spoke to Jim about his book from his house in Arras, in France, over the interweb. I started by asking him to give us some background to the Battle of Arras and how it related to the First Battle of the Scarp. Yes, uh, thanks Thanks for inviting me to the podcast. Um, the, the background is really lays around the changes that happened at the end of 1916 when there was quite a lot of changes to the uh, hierarchies both in France and Britain in terms of change of Prime Minister and a change of Commander-in-Chief in France. And General Nivelle taking over from General Joffre was really the, the instigation of everything that happened from then on in 1917, because he came in as a, a little bit of a breath of fresh air as far as the politicians were concerned, because he wasn't just saying more of the same. He was saying, I can do this. I can actually win the war. In hindsight, it all sounds very nice and uh, rather silly. But at the time, it gave the politicians hope that something would be different. And so him taking over the French command was also very good for Lloyd George taking over prime minister in the UK because he said, I'm going to carry out the major attack. In other words, the French were going to carry out the major attack. So the, the, the basic idea of the early part of 17 was going to be that the French were going to carry out one large offensive. Uh, some part of the centre part and mainly on the Chemin de Dam around Soissons and Reims and that area. And the British were going to actually take a side role, a sort of a, a role that would be trying to draw German army units away from the main French offensive. And so that was the, where the idea of the attack at Arras came from. It wasn't really Haig's idea. Haig was still with his fixation on the North Sea and around Ypres. But he, com- he complied with what was being asked of him and began the planning for the battle of what became the Battle of Arras. Now, not going into lots of complexities of what happened with the French, but basically the retreat to the Hindenburg Line threw all of those plans into some sort of disarray, the German retreat to the Hindenburg Line. But the, the British attack basically went in as expected, and it was what Haig had planned, and that meant that the British had a part of what happened in April 17. It was supposed to happen earlier than April 17, but by the time everything had been really organised and the offensive could begin, it had got that late in the year. And, and so that was the background to where the Battle of Arras came from. It wasn't instigated by the British. It was part of a plan by the French General Nouvelle, and Haig basically agreed to go along with the idea of the plan. And that's that led to the 9th of April being the 8th of April actually being the chosen date. And it became the 9th of April because the French wanted a delay of a day with a one week delay before the French offensive would start. And so it was a, a sort of diversion. I don't really like the phrase diversion. It's used in a lot of places because it was part of a two pronged offensive with different timings uh, in order to put the Germans off balance, really. But with more divisions attacking on the first day than on the first day of the Somme, I think diversion tends to belittle it a little. So that was the background to where, where it began. So how does this relate to the First Battle of the Scarp? 
Well, the first part, the, the Battle of Arras itself is split into three parts, uh, as far as nomenclature is concerned with the, the nomenclature committee after the end of the war. And they, they split the Battle of Arras in 1917 into three parts, basically because on the 9th of April, the first battle, the first day of the, the major battle, that after four or five days began to tail off and Haig actually drew a halt to the major offensive and decided that there was going to be a further offensive later on, which eventually became the 23rd of April. That's actually planned for the 20th of April, but it, was, it, it starts on the 23rd of April. So because there was a lull in the fighting, a lull in the action, uh, then the, the 23rd of April became the second battle. And therefore, because it's all around the River Scarp, which is the river that runs through Arras, then the first battle became the first battle of the Scarp, second battle of the Scarp. And then again, after that, there was uh, somewhat of a lull after the 23rd, 24th of April. Uh, there was then an offensive on the 28th of April, which is very confusing to people because that be that becomes the Battle of Arleur, because that was where the major part of that offensive took place. And then there was another lull to the 3rd of May, when the final offensive took place around the Scarp, which therefore became the third battle of the Scarp. So in a sense, it's all the Battle of Arras 1917, split into those three major days. Now your book focuses obviously on the first battle, which is the first five days from the 9th of April through to about the 14th of April, to give, give or take. So what happened in that five days? Well, the reason I chose to just concentrate on that is that that was the period of time which uh, was ever since the, the front on the Western Front had become solid in terms of trench warfare uh, in October, late October 1914. It was the first time those first few days that really any army had made the sort of advances they made on the 9th of April. And because that was such a successful day, but then the next few days didn't seem to follow in that sort of trend, I always found it interesting that the first Battle of the Scarp was a brilliant example of something which we seem to have learned how to get so far, but we seem to then go wrong. And then when I look at the second and third Scarp, they tend to be very similar to many of the small scale offensives that happened on the Somme, uh, where a number of divisions would be attacking, they had limited objectives, those objectives sometimes were not met, and at the end of the day, it was really a bit of a disaster. And both the second and third scarf are, in, in essence, failures. <laughs> so why did you feel that the book was necessary on the battle? There's very little written about the, the Battle of Arras. Uh, the, the only real books that are on there on the shelf, if, there's a sh if it's on the shelf, is the official history. Uh, is obviously one, one source where you can read about it. And other than that, when I first moved to the area and I wanted to read about the area, the only books I had, the only book I had available at the time, other than the official history, was John Nichols' Cheerful Sacrifice. And reading that, I felt that firstly, it gave me an insight into the Battle of Arras. But on the other hand, it left me gasping for more because it's very much an anecdotal book. It's based on soldiers' reminiscences. It's an excellent book to read. Um, but it leaves you thinking, why? What, what happened here? What, what went wrong? And also, why don't people look at it? That was really a question in my head. Why don't people look at it? And while I was researching and working on it, only one other piece of work came out, which was um, Peter Barton and Jeremy Banning's book on Arras, which was really one of the, a big, I wouldn't call it a picture book, makes it derogatory, but a, a large book on the, um, the various photography that was done at the time and part of the Peter Barton's series on, on those. And again, that itself, I looked at the whole of the battle, three battles of the Scarp plus Bullcourt, and therefore could only skim the surface of what actually happened. What I felt was, in my mind, was I couldn't really see what went wrong over those few days at the beginning. Why was the first day such a success when everybody says it was a brilliant success, but then it all falls down? And I felt that some of the excuses being given at the time were not plausible. They were an excuse. There were things like that, and it was usually to do with the weather. We couldn't get artillery up. We couldn't do that. The weather was, was poor. It all fell through. We just couldn't put, keep pushing. 
And the more I did research, the more I thought there's more to the to the story than that. And it led me to think that I think this 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 particular battle, these first few days, needs uh, a close analysis of how the British Army, where the British Army was at the time. And I started to feel that I was seeing a picture of the British Army at some midpoint between the battles of the Somme and Third Ypres. Because if I get your argument correct, you're, you're basically saying that the British Army got some things right, which they learned from the Somme, but there were still many things they had got wrong, especially around the command and control and the, the actions of senior generals. Can you, can you give us a bit of background on, on what you thought the, the British were doing well and what they obviously were seriously lacking in? I think what happened on the Somme was at a tactical level, that is a lower level in, in terms of a battalion and lower level. In terms of that, the, the actions of men on the ground, actually from trench to trench and those sort of things, a lot of development happened over the over those 141 days of the Somme. In that, at particular, at, even at lower battalion levels, people were beginning to experiment with different ways of doing things. Even on the first day of the Somme, there are differences in the way that men went over the top. Uh, people have an idea that everything was exactly the same. It wasn't. And there were levels of success in some places because people said, well, I think if I try this, it would be better. And there was a lot of trial and error going on in the Somme, but at a tactical level. And what that led to was a number of changes to small unit organization and the idea of what a platoon uh, was going to be. And the platoon at the beginning of the Battle of the Somme was very much a, a, an infantry rifleman platoon. And all of the specialists, such as bombers and Lewis gunners, rifle grenade, they tended to be pulled out into other units and into specialized units. And that was seen over the Battle of the Somme to be a mistake. And that actually what you needed was those arms being combined. So in some respects, the Somme was the first experimentation with combined arms at a very small level, at a platoon level, in that they, they dis, many battalions decided to reorganize the way they used those specialist units. And that led to the British Army as a whole seeing that as a way forward, that at lower unit level, it needed, we needed a development. We needed the small unit platoon to be a multi-arms uh, unit, uh, able to uh, cope with an objective and cope with any difficulties with that objective, uh, itself without necessarily calling on some other troops. And so SS143, which was produced in, which was basically a, a pamphlet uh, to go out to divisions, was actually saying to divisions, oh, reorganize your platoons in this way. So the company and the platoon was reorganized so the platoon had all of those four elements, the riflemen and the other three new elements of the war, all combined together. And that was actually in place. And you, when you look at the first Battle of the Scarf, when you look at the 9th of April, you read how units uh, are actually acting in that way. They've clearly trained as platoons with these four different uh, elements to them, four sections, each of which having a role. And many times you read of a particular objective, uh, a difficulty with a machine gun nest or whatever, and it being dealt with by platoon action. In other words, they have pinned down the machine gun by use of Lewis gunners, whilst the bombers made or rifle grenades, whilst bombers went round the flank. They, they worked in that sort of way. So at the lower level, a lot of development had, had happened on the Somme, which had then been formalised by the British Army as a whole, had been disseminated to divisional level, and that disseminated down. So that by the time the 9th of April came round, the battalion itself was working in a much different way than any time at the beginning of the Battle of the Somme. Uh, it was not yet working in terms of away from waves of men. 
but the way those waves were being used was very different to the early days of the Somme. And also at moving up to the company and battalion level, that had led to them having a, a greater idea of the movement and the continuing of an offensive and a continuum of an action by moving those waves in successive objectives. That is also something that had been being tried and being developed on the Somme. The idea that a battalion would not have an objective which all the men were trying to get to, but that maybe one company would have one objective, the next company would have the further objective. The idea of men going through uh, and then following troops doing some um, mopping up as well. And that actually had moved up to brigade and divisional level in that divisional commanders were now using the same idea that a brigade may actually move forward and take one objective. A second brigade would go through and take a further objective. And many of those have been tried and tested at the latter days of the Somme. Uh, the one element that hadn't been tried in the Somme that was tried because of this idea of troops moving through other troops uh, was a division passing through another division. And that was tried on the first day of, the, of, of Arras, on the 9th, where the 4th fourth, fourth Division actually were allotted the job of going through 9th Division, when 9th Division had actually reached it, its objective. And it did. 9th Division reached the Brown Line, which was its objective, uh, early afternoon on the 9th, and 4th Division actually passed through to the further objective, the Green Line, which it actually reached. Uh, that didn't quite work south of the Scarp, where the 37th Division couldn't get through because it, the early divisions hadn't made the Brown Line. But that was, again, a development at that sort of tactical level of troops moving through other troops. So all of that had developed from the Somme. They'd learned that on the Somme. It was really uh, trained for for the 9th of April, the first battle of the Scarp, and carried out very successfully, certainly in terms of north of the Scarp, with 9th Division being pushed through the 4th Division, the platoon, all the way from platoon action to a division passing through another. That worked. What then seemed to go wrong was that all of that worked, but we hadn't really learned how to deal with success. We hadn't learned how to deal with, we've reached our objective, what goes next? And that's where I found things started to really fall down in terms of, for example, 4th Division moves through 9th Division on the 9th of April, reaches its objective for the day. It has no orders for the following day. Nobody really knows what to do at that point. Then where things do not worked out, south of the Scarp, where objectives haven't been found, inertia tends to take over and people don't really know how to move on from that first day. We really have learned how to break through the German lines quite deeply, um, but we haven't then learned how to deal with the situation, this fluid situation that we have. And that's really moving up towards command and control. That's looking at the idea of the staff having then the role of giving out orders for the next day. And that's where I find that orders become confused, they become late, uh, decisions become very confused, and that's the side of things which starts to go wrong. Now, yes, weather is an element. It was not good weather at that time. But my feeling was that what I could see in all the orders and when the orders were being made, when the decisions were being made, and how they were being communicated to the frontline troops is that it all became very confused. And troops and lower end men, battalion commanders, for example, really did not know what was what was happening. You make two interesting points in your book about this. Firstly, there was a, an issue of leadership, the quality of leadership. And secondly, there was the administrative problem of actually having people to convert high level staff officers into operational orders for at the regimental level. And how did these problems actually work in, in, in the battlefield? I think the a really good example of that in terms of, of, of command uh, is what happens at the south, is south of the Scarp with, with 56th Division. Um, because on the 9th of April, the, the south of the Scarp, things have not worked out as well as north of the Scarp in terms of planning. The, the day's objective has not been, fat, has not been met. 
in terms of being able to get to the green line, which is the taking of Manchy Le Preux. Um, but then what happens there in terms of the end of the day is orders then go out for a renewal of the attack. Everybody knows what the objectives are because they're the same objectives as the day before. And the, the, the order goes out from army level that the, the attack should be renewed at eight o'clock the next morning to give to, to people time to sort of reorganize themselves and get orders down to battalion level. But 50, at Hull of 56 Division, the centre of the hall asks that that be delayed until noon, till 12 o'clock. And he says he needs to clear up his in, in front. And it's what's happened is that he started to have troops bombing down trenches. And he wants that to be quite cleared up through the night and through the morning to, before, he create, before he actually launches any offensive. But what that does is actually still the whole thing, because what what army and corps then decide is because he is waiting, he has to wait till 12. And they just they just say, yes, OK, we will. We'll wait till 12. And therefore, they tell the divisions on either side that nothing's going to happen till 12. So you have a real inertia going on here in terms of there are troops who have reached certain levels. They are ready to move forward the next day, but they're all held Till, till noon. And when you actually analyse what happens, there isn't really anything happening. Nothing gets sorted out with 56 Division. Nothing gets clarified there, as, he, as Hull wanted. Um, he's just bombing down trenches still. He then, at 12 o'clock, has no real organised attack on a particular line that he needs to take. The division north of him, 14th Division, also has to take that line and finds itself attacking with no 56 Division units attacking at all. Those units of 56 Division, the battalions of 56 Division, do not have clear orders for the afternoon of the 10th. They do not have orders that have come down to them as to what they need to do. And when you read through the, the divisional di diaries and then the battalion diaries, you realise that really there is no coordinated attack of 56 Division on the 10th of April, even at 12 o'clock, even though they've had the night and the morning to sort themselves out in a sense. And that actually affects the whole of the Battle of South of the Scarp because that has a knock-on effect northwards all the way through to actually nothing happening at all and that Monchi the Pleur is not taken on that day either. And it's the 56th Division actions down there are a perfect example of what really has started to go on. It's the, the, the staff officers and command structure are beginning to almost swim through mud in terms of um, their reactions and their uh, analysis of the situation and their orders for what has to happen next. They really do lose any sort of momentum of what, should, what an attack should be happening. And I think a lot of it is down to inexperience. A lot of it's down to them not understanding the need for momentum to be kept moving as, as much as it should have done. It's interesting, to, I suppose, track moving from trench warfare which they've been trying to deal with to so-called open warfare and this is where the command system clearly breaks down obviously it's hampered by the state of communications which are based on runners and and cables laid which could be cut um and also bad weather but there's a sort of sense of that the whole sort of um human machine isn't geared to a different way of thinking in terms of fighting war is that would that be a fair assessment I think that's where, when, where I see the British Army of having reached at this point. And I think that's why I feel that Battle of Arras is an important battle to analyse more fully than has been done before, because it is this interim point, this point where we have learned really how to begin to fight at a low unit level. That very changes very little for the rest of the war, the how lower units work and function. But what we haven't done is learnt as an army in this vast expanded army that we've suddenly created. We have not got the depth of experience of staff officers that the French or German army had, all already being a very big army and therefore having that sort of level of staff. We've had to create that in just two and a half, three years. And I think that has led to us just not being able to cope with a situation where we're now having to, we haven't got the two or three weeks before an offensive to get all the paper 
paperwork ready to get out to everybody to so everybody knows exactly what they're doing. Staff officers are having to react on the day, immediately on the day, and they're not doing. Uh, it's all a little bit off. It's all a little bit um, haphazard. It's all a little bit off the hoof. Uh, people are not really ready to do the sort of work that's necessary in the systematic way that it needs when you get one day followed by a second day offensive, followed by a third day of offensive and so on and so forth. And um, that becomes clear in the fact that orders are not getting down anywhere to people in any sort of reasonable time. Now, that's in a situation where runners are still, it is not a difficult, it's not a Passchendaele situation where you've got the diff- a runner having to spend three hours to get back to battalion HQ. Many places, for example, around the Fatas, a runner could actually get back to brigade headquarters very quickly. When you read through the diaries of brigade at divisional level, they are getting communication reasonably, they're getting information reasonably rapidly, but they're not reacting to it in the right sort of way. So the communication side, yes, there are always problems with communication. Sometimes it's wrong. Sometimes you see it as wrong, uh, yet sometimes communication is there, but nothing's happened, nothing's done about it. And I think a, good, a great example of that on the first day is the difference between 15th Division and 12th Division in their actions just south of the Scarp. Both of them are attacking from Arras, from the uh, sort of edge of Arras, up onto uh, Observation Ridge, which is a, a ridge that basically runs from tilloir les mouflins uh, northwards to the Scarp. And you can basically, when you're on that, you can just see right into Arras. And that's Observation Ridge. The other side of that is a famous Battery Valley, where a lot of artillery were. And then the next ridge is Orange Hill, just before Monchi. The idea was 15th and 12th Division were supposed to go get up onto Observation Ridge. In the first instance, for the Blue Line, that would be by early morning, and then move on to Orange Bridge in the afternoon, um, which will be for the 37th Division to then go and take Monchie. Now, things go wrong coming up onto Observation Ridge. They get delayed. And a thing that can happen, you know, tough German defences. For the 15th Division, it was a railway triangle. For 12th Division, it was one or two redoubts that lie on the, the slope going up to Observation Ridge. They were delayed. 15th Division know they're delayed at the railway triangle, and they pull back the rolling barrage, the creeping barrage. They, they they get in touch with the artillery and say, it's supposed to start at 12.30. We don't want it to start at 12.30. We want to start at 2.30. So they, re, they, they, they draw the barrage back. So instead of at 12.30, the barrage moving from Observation Ridge towards Orange Hill, it starts at 2.30. 15th Division follow the barrage and get up onto Observation Ridge. So the, the communication gets back, the decision's made, and success up onto the Brown Line. 12th Division have the same information. They can actually see, you can physically see the difficulties of getting up onto the blue line. 12th Division actually have communiques in the morning saying, we are not on the blue line as yet. We are late. They know they're late, but they don't change the barrage. So they know the information, they know it, but nobody makes the decision to change the barrage. So at 12.30, the barrage in front of 12th Division starts on Observation Ridge, heads off towards Orange Hill with no troops following it. And there's actually German accounts of them watching this barrage come towards them, getting out of the way, the barrage passes over them, and then getting back out again, thinking they're going to be fighting and being surprised. There's actually one account in the German uh, histories which actually says how surprised they were that this barrage was not being followed by any troops. And that was 12th Division. So when they did attack the Brown Line, they had no barrage and they failed, which was that typical situation of we'd learned how to do it, but if we didn't do it correctly, we still had the same problems that we've always had. If we didn't have a creeping barrage in front of us, the Germans were ready and were good enough to be able to stop us. And what's interesting is, is, the, is the site paradox you have on the tactical level. On the tactical level, you have institutional decrees saying that platoons must form four sections um, along rifle, rifle grenades, etc. But you have a completely different feeling at sort of command level where it's still very much decentralised and everybody's got their own little working practices rather than actually having some, some sort of centrally imposed doctrine from, from the high command. So it's showing a very interesting situation on the learning curve debate in terms of 
of um, where the British Army got to, and some people arguing there was a learning curve, and I would argue your work probably would suggest that as well. But showing that it's you know it's learning, but there's still many things to to, to develop in terms of how the British Army was fighting. I think that's I think what I've the work I've been looking at is a good example of where the the early idea of a learning curve was a little bit too simplified because it almost had an idea that the, everything in the army was developing in a certain way following one curve whereas in a set in a developmental sense everything is developing at different rates which is why you could say that the army actually has about probably 30 or 40 different curves uh, some of which will not be going up all the time in a, de- in, in a certain certain way straight line or a, even in a nice smooth curve and i think what's an example there is that there was one element of the british army where the where there was quite significant development between the first of july 1916 and the 9th of april 1917 and that was in this idea of small platoon actions the way it would actually work at a tactical level. There were other things we'd developed in terms of artillery, in terms of counter barrage and, and all those sort of things. But there are then in fact some areas, and that I think at the more at the divisional command level and staff level, where between the 1st of July, not so much the 1st of July, but even, even the middle of the battles of the Somme, and the start of, and the, then after the first day of the Battle of Arras, you don't, you see things that have not really developed. There are things that have not been particularly well learnt because probably on the Somme it hadn't arrived, it hadn't arisen uh, as much as it should have done in terms of there, there hadn't been situations where we had made those sort of breakthroughs and needed that decision making that said, how do we then actually carry this through into a second or third day? But we hadn't done that. And to some extent, that's why Arras, I think, needed more careful examination at the time uh, in terms of somebody should have been saying, what actually should we learn from this? So that when we next have a, a situation where we attack and we take lots of ground, we know what to do on the next one on the next sort of phase. I haven't said it particularly in the book, but as I've worked, I've sort of thought for the Battle of, of Ypres, there was an argument all, all the way up to the start of Battle of Third Ypres. There was the argument about do we actually try and do a major breakthrough or the bite and hold idea, the difference between the, t- the different general ideas that people had at the time. And the argument fell down to Goff and his breakthrough and Haig was still the idea will break through. And I wonder if they'd have actually looked at Arras carefully enough, they'd have realised that the British Army were not actually capable of that yet. We might be capable of making the first four, three or four kilometres, but we really were not in a state yet where we were ready to then take it on for another two or three days. Whereas in August 18, we were at Amiens, we're ready not only to do the first day and make great advances, but to a second and third day. They're making a, a, the excellent decision not to even push it any further for logistics point of view, but we were ready to take it into the second and third day and actually use that momentum uh, to, to destroy the German army as opposed to just put it into severe difficulties. Yeah, just those extra two or three days making that difference. But we weren't there in Arras and we weren't there at Ypres either. Uh, and maybe that and that's the sort of area where we, I think a lot of learning could have been done and a lot of development could have been done out of the lessons of Arras. But, and this is, and, and Gary Sheffield actually accused me of perhaps being sort of uh, looking at it in terms of a controversial level i'm not this is not saying the generals were useless or whatever it's saying that they were not actually quite ready for what they were doing but they quite naturally didn't do much in the way of self-analysis because to admit to themselves and to the wider military public that they had got something wrong was a dangerous thing to do because they were in a job and they would would have been sensitive about that job Uh, and i think Another example there is the absolute debacle on the 14th of April at monchy le preux where 29th Division, where Delisle sends one brigade of two battalions 
forward in a salient, further into the salient, with nothing happening on either flank. Now, militarily, that could be used today with, with any units and with any army. I'm sure it could be used at Sandhurst as a brilliant example of what not to do, sending uh, you know, a couple of thousand, nearly you know, like about 1,500 men, in a way, into a pocket where they had no way out and leaving it to the enemy to be quite, to just simply mop them up. Uh, but it was never looked at. Uh, it was never really, and he wasn't ever criticised for any of the staff work or for any decision making. It was an awful decision. Even the official history hints that it being the worst decision ever uh, by saying that why didn't he wait for another day when he could have had units attacking on either flank. Uh, but it's another example where that's ne- that's then hidden. Nothing's ever really looked at from as a result of that. Commanders are reticent to accept that they've made mistakes because of the follow-up that that can mean from high command in terms of their job. And so they'd quite naturally, it's not any conspiracy, as Gary <laughs> accused me of perhaps, of perhaps saying, it's not a conspiracy. It's just simple human nature that you, if you can, if you make mistakes and you recognize them yourself, but you don't actually advertise them and you get away with that, you you're happy because you might have learned, but they're not learning as a collective. They're only learning individually. So that information, that learning is not being disseminated to everybody else. Uh, people are still making those sort of mistakes and they are still making those sort of mistakes at Third Eep. One final question, Jim, where can people get your book? I know it's published by Hellion. Um, where is it available? It's available on Amazon. I've just uh, searched my name, Jim Smithson or Taste of Success, and you'll find it on, on Amazon there. Jim, thank you very much for your time. Hey, you're welcome. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.